all of us recognize that communication is fraught with many pitfalls. We can, all, we can very often communicate that which is misleading. Take, for instance, the woman who was quite concerned about her husband who had joined the, the Navy and she was concerned about his safety. And so she went to her pastor and she slipped him a little note with a prayer request for her husband. And on this note that she, lit, she passed to her pastor was this request. It reads, George Bowen, having gone to sea, requests prayers for his safety. But the pastor, wonderful pastor he is, read, George Bowen, having gone to see his wife, requests prayer for his safety. Now, I want to suggest to you, <laughs> I don't know if you got it, <laughs> but I want to suggest to you that there is a world of difference between these two things. Communication is fraught with dangers. It is fraught with danger when you look at the modern means of communication. Very often we are confused about what younger people are talking about. Hashtag, I'm sitting in church. Or hashtag, I'm eating a hamburger. Now, I know that I'm not using it right, but that, and that, that makes the point I'm trying to get across. We don't quite understand. And if you are texting, that is fraught with danger. Because if you have auto-suggest on your, on your phone or your iPhone or whatever it is, it will suggest things that you don't really intend to say. So I'm texting a friend, and his name is Bobby, and I'm not really paying attention, and I write, hi, Bobby. But the thing changed, Bobby, and it writes, hi, Jelly. And he goes off to him as high jelly. Now, he isn't the thinnest of fellows, and so he thought, I'm making a statement about him being like jello or jelly or something like that. We get into a lot of trouble. Even in the age of technology, communication is fraught. Often, communication is cryptic. Victor Hugo, the celebrated French writer, when he wrote Les Miserables, in 1862, was in self-imposed exile. And he wanted to know how his book was received in France. And so he wrote his publicist a letter. But all that was there was a symbol, a question mark. And when his publicist received the letter, he wrote back another letter. And on it was an exclamation mark. That was cryptic for most of us. Most people who had not known the background and circumstances would never be able to understand what was happening between these two people. So we have communication that is misleading, that often is embarrassing and at all the times cryptic and vague. God, however, has communicated to us in a manner that is accurate and clear and full. He has spoken to us climatically in Jesus Christ, his Son. And Hebrews chapter 1 makes this very point. 
makes it right there in the prologue that God has spoken in verses 1 to 4. The epistle to the Hebrews appears as a lengthy sermon. It is indeed an epistle as you will note at the end of the book because it has the forms and the greetings of an epistle. But the very language, the numerous exhortations in this epistle suggests that it is an epistle to be read to the people of God, a sermon to be read to the people of God. It is an epistle written to believers, perhaps before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, sometime in AD 67 or 68, perhaps. We do not know the author, although some have suggested it was written by Paul and even by Apollos and Barnabas. What we do know, however, is that this epistle was written largely to a Jewish audience and perhaps written to those who were in Jerusalem as Christians. It in its intent as an epistle is to encourage believers to remain faithful to their confession, their, their confession of faith, to remain faithful to their confession, their Christian confession, and not abandon the faith. Some, it appears, were in danger of losing their spiritual nerve because of persecution that they were facing. Others, it seems, were hankering for the good old days under Judaism, the days when they saw something of the charm of the temple and the ritual pump of the priesthood and, of course, the daily sacrifices. And so the human author of Hebrews writes this epistle and in it he compares the best of Judaism with the best that they have in Christ. And he argues that what they have in Christ is far better than what is to be found in Judaism. He pursues a theme then of Jesus is better in Hebrews. And you see that beginning in chapter 1 verse 4. Jesus is better. He will argue after the prologue that Jesus is better than angels. In chapters 1, 2 to 18. He's better than Moses. Better than Joshua and Aaron. And better than the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. All the way up to chapter 10. In chapter 10, 26... To the end of chapter 12, he calls them to perseverance in the faith. And then he, in chapter 13, concludes the epistle with exhortations and prayer and greeting. Our point this morning, however, is to note what he says in this prologue, in these first four verses. First of all, I want to commend to you that the prologue tells us that the finality of God's revelation has arrived climactically in the Son. That is, the finality of God's revelation has arrived in the Son. Hebrew begins with one of the most magnificent statements about Christ. In verses, verses 1 to 4, which represents, in, in fact, one long sentence in the Greek, is artfully constructed. It is a verse that emphasizes that God has spoken. 
And so the author says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by the Son. What he does is he contrasts two ages of revelation. He contrasts the age of the past. And he says that in the past, God revealed himself to the forefathers, not just to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but to all Old Testament believers. He revealed himself, he spoke to them, in the past, at many times, and in various ways. The prophets of old, through whom he spoke, communicated God's word, and they communicated God's word in prophetic utterances, in narrative accounts, even in parabolic sayings, and in signs, and even in what we would call acted parables. We take the example of, the, of Ezekiel. So God has spoken in the past through the prophets, and he did so many times and in various ways. That revelation that was given in the prophet was authentic. In other words, it was genuine revelation from God. God was speaking and thus the prophets could say, thus says the Lord, because the revelation they brought was revelation they received from God. But principally, because they were speaking at many times and in different ways, that revelation that they spoke in the past was fragmentary, incomplete, and progressive. In other words, they did not say everything that was to be said from God. They said sufficient for their generation, for their era, but they did not say everything that God intended to say to mankind. So we read, God who at various times and in various ways spoken in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. We see then the former age. And now we see the second stage in God's revelation in these last days. And the last days of which the writer speaks refer to the age that began with the coming of Christ and revealed in his death and revelation that Christ stands at the parting of the way, that in Jesus Christ's history is divided. It is Jesus then who brings in, who ushers in a new age. And the writer says that in these last days, God has spoken in the Son. Now, the verb have spoken is past tense and says nothing about the future. But the entire gist of the sentence is simply that God has spoken finally and climatically in Jesus Christ. The finality of God's revelation has occurred in the Son. God in these last days has spoken fully and finally in the Son. Now, the reason that the Son of God is the final revelation of God, that God has nothing else to say to mankind 
outside of what he has said in Christ, the reason Christ is a finality of God's revelation rests upon the superiority of the Son himself. That is what this author says to us. He says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the world. He's simply saying that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is superior to all who brought revelation in the past. And thus he is qualified because of his personal superiority to be the final revelation of God. You know that he is superior in quality because of what he says. He says, God in these last days has spoken by Son. He does not say by the Son. And the reason he leaves off the article, the, so he does not say the Son, but God has spoken by Son, is that so that you and I may look at the quality of the revelation of the Son. When you have in a case like this where the article is missing from the noun, it, it, its intention then is not just to look at the fact of the noun, but on the quality of the noun. And so the revelation in Jesus Christ is vastly superior to the revelation in, prof, in the prophets because this is an in-son revelation. God has spoken in his son. It is an in-son revelation. Now, in order to prove that the revelation in the Son is vastly greater than any other revelation, he talks about then and describes the nature of the Son. In fact, there are seven descriptions, seven facts that distinguish the Son. And these seven facts, if you're summarize them, speak to his divine identity and his divine activity. Notice he defines the Son in verse 2. He says, God in these last days has spoken to us by Son. And the first description of the Son is, whom he appointed heir of all things. The Son is the heir of all things. Of course, there's a reference here to Psalm 2 verse 8. But we are in Psalm 2, the one who will inherit, will inherit the nations. Here, the Son will inherit the, not only the nations, but the entire universe. It does not mean that the Son did not inherit all things before, because he possessed all things before. But it is as the exalted God-man that he inherits the universe. God has appointed him to be heir of all things. The second description of the Son is through whom he made the world. So the Son is not only heir, but he is the agent of creation. And again, there is then a reference to Proverbs 8 and 27 to 31, where the writer of Proverbs talks about wisdom as the creator of the world. God created the world through wisdom. It's interesting that in the New Testament, our Lord Jesus Christ by the Apostle Paul is described as the wisdom of God. Thus, our Lord Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God through whom the world was created. He is appointed heir of the world because he is the creator of the world. He is the agent of creation. The third description of Jesus, now found in verse 3, is perhaps the heart of his identity. He says, who being the brightness of his glory 
and the express image of his person. So he describes the Son, in whom God has finally spoken, as the brightness of God's glory. That is, he is the effulgence. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is then a manifestation of the glorious presence of God. He goes on and says that he is the exact image of his person. And there are two words here in this phrase that require uh, clarification. The term image, which is character, means an imprint made, for instance, by a die or a stamp. He, therefore, is the exact representation, the exact imprint of the being of God. And the word person or being, as we have in our translation, hypostasis, refer to the substance or the essence of God. And so what he's saying of Jesus is that he is the brilliance of God, the outshining of God, and he is the exact copy, the exact representation of the nature of God. We need to understand what is happening here because what he's saying to us is that Jesus Christ is fully qualified to represent God in all of his fullness because he himself is God. He is the one who exactly represents God, represents the being of God, the character of God. He is God himself. The fourth description is that the Son is the one who, who upholds all things by the word of his power. This one who is creator, this one who is heir of all things and the exact image of the Father's being, this one is a sustainer of the universe. He's not like the mythological Atlas who holds the universe on his shoulder. The verb here translated upholding all things by the word of his power. This term upholding is the term pharaoh, which means to carry along, to bear it along. So that this, this one who represents God is the one who not only bears up the world, but he carries it to its conclusion, to its ultimate goal, which is to glorify God. He's a sustainer of all things. The fifth description in verse 3 pictures the Son as the one who purifies our sins. When he had, he says, by himself purged our sins. The Son who created the world, the Son who sustains the world, is the one who is involved in the world because he removes the guilt of our sin. He removes our sins. He cleanses us, and that means he provides atoning work. He provides a sacrifice. This is the first reference in this epistle to the priestly work of Christ. He cleanses our sins. And that will be developed further in chapters 9 and 10 regarding the cleansing work of the Lord. But he is the one who removes our defilement before God. He is the one who purges our consciences from dead works. So he removes our legal guilt before God and removes the guilt in our hearts because of our sins and our misdeeds. He cleanses us. The sixth description 
is of the Son as the exalted Lord. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the term majesty on high is an indirect way of talking about God. So having purged our sins, he has taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high, at the right hand of God. Whereas the Old Testament priests were always standing as they went about their duties, because their duty was never complete, the Son takes his seat. He has taken his seat in heaven, because his work of redemption is complete. And he is now seated at the right hand of God. And the right hand, of course, as we have said on many occasions, refer to the place of the highest place of honor and glory and the highest place of power. So he has taken his seat and now he's reigning in the place of exceedingly great honor and power. This one who has purged our sins, who died on the cross, is reigning in heaven. The seventh description is that this one who is now exalted in heaven as the God-man, the Son of God, and reigning in heaven, this one is greater than angels. And he's greater than angels because he has received a name that is more excellent than theirs. There is debate as to what name is referred to here, whether it is a name Son or the name Lord. But either of those, I would suggest to you, is greater than that of the angels. It is not that he was not, if we take this name to refer to the title Son, it is not that he's receiving the term Son at this point when he was exalted to heaven. He's always been the Son. But having been exalted to heaven, his sonship is vindicated. His sonship is proved before the world. And so what the writer of Hebrews says, it is precisely because of the greatness of the person of the Son, precisely because of the greatness of who he is, that he's qualified to represent and to reveal the Father. He in himself embodies the nature of God. He in himself renders the invisible God visible. This is not very different from what John says of the Son. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And later on in the same chapter, he says, No one has ever seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. What we're saying then is that Jesus Christ is the fullest, he is the final revelation of God. God has spoken in time past to the fathers, through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken finally to us in his Son. The finality of God's revelation has come to us first and foremost in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But it needs to be examined briefly the content of that revelation in Jesus. What has God said to us in his Son? It leads me to then to conclude that the finality of God's revelation in his Son, the finality of this revelation in the Son, is primarily a word about salvation. The revelation that we have received 
from God through the Son is essentially a revelation about salvation. Now, the prologue does not tell us this. But if you just skip over to chapter 2 and were to read verses 2 to 4, you will see that the Son, the message that we have received in the Son is the message of salvation. And so the pastor who writes to this congregation says, For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. What is he saying? He's saying that our Lord Jesus Christ came and began to proclaim the message of salvation, a message of deliverance from the wrath of God. The apostles of the Lord also testified to this message, and the Holy Spirit confirmed their message of salvation in Christ with powerful signs, wonders, and miracles. God revealed himself finally in the Son, and the revelation in the Son is not to merely educate, but to save. In fact, this term of salvation is vital in this book of Hebrews, because there are some seven different occasions where the writer uses satira and uses this satira word group, this word of salvation. In fact, this is the most frequent occurrence of salvation in any New Testament book. It is a deliverance from wrath. And God has spoken in his Son, and his message to us in the Son is a saving message, a message about salvation. When you look at the nature of salvation according to the writer of Hebrews, the salvation that has come to us in Jesus, we note first and foremost that salvation is a personal achievement of the Son of Jesus Christ our Lord. The prophets were looking to a day when there would be a messianic deliverer who would come. But in Jesus, in his very person, salvation has arrived. That is why he is Yeshua. That is why he is Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. And we get an inkling early in chapter 2 how he goes about saving. For the writer states, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. How did our Lord Jesus Christ save? Well, he's, he's saved by taking on the nature of his children. He became flesh like his own people. And he tasted death. He experienced death fully. In other words, he died in the place of his people. And he had accomplished salvation then at a costly price by laying down his life for our sins. 
This salvation then is the personal achievement of the Son of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the salvation that Jesus Christ brings is first of all characterized as future. So in Hebrews chapter 1 and in the last verse of chapter 1, we see that salvation is future in its orientation. Speaking about angels, the author says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? They will inherit salvation? He sees salvation as future. That there is an eschatological component to salvation. And that, that aspect of salvation, which is future, finds support throughout this epistle. First and foremost, we see in chapter 9, where it says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And to those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Hebrews 9.28 He's coming to save utterly. This eschatological thrust of salvation will result in numerous blessings. First of all, this future salvation that Christ has brought about will issue into a permanent order. And so in chapter 12 we read, See that you don't refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heavens. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things which are being shaken, as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. When Christ comes in the fullness of salvation, he will shake this universe. And the things that are made, the things that are temporary and passing, will pass away so that that which is permanent and eternal will come into being. There's a future salvation that will issue into a permanent order. It will result in the bringing of many sons to glory. Chapter 2, verse 10. It will mean the entering finally into the Sabbath of the Lord, into the Sabbath rest in chapter 4 verse 1. It will be to receive the eternal inheritance in chapter 9 verse 15. It will be also to enter into the city that has foundation, whose maker and builder is God in chapter 11. This future salvation then, if we are to encapsulate it, it is to enter into the heavenly country. But it needs to be said that the salvation that Jesus brings, yes, which is bound up in his person and work, and which is future in its orientation, that salvation is also revealed as a present reality. So that it is not that we are simply looking for a city that has foundation. It is not that we are simply waiting for salvation. We now, by faith, enter into salvation here and now in this world. This present salvation is ours because Christ is described as the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him in Hebrews 5.9. He's the one who brings present cleansing, as we have seen in chapter 1, verse 3. He's the one who puts away our sins by the sacrifice of himself in chapter 9.26. He's the one who propitiates God now. That is, he removes 
wrath of God in chapter 2, verse 17. He's the one who breaks the power of the devil over us in chapter 2, verse 14. So that we may be liberated from the fear of death. He's the one who, here and now, gives us access into the presence of God by a new and a living way that even now we, the same, may approach God. You see, he now becomes a guarantee of a better covenant. We belong now as God's saved people to a new covenant. What I'm arguing then is this. God has spoken finally in the Son. God's last word to humanity is in Jesus, and the word in Jesus is salvic. It's a saving word. It's a word about salvation to his people. But if the finality of God's revelation is in the Son, and the finality of that revelation is a saving revelation, we need to know the finality of God's revelation in the Son, thirdly, is specifically addressed to us. Note in verse 2, where we have been considering, God having spoken at various times and in various ways, in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. The finality of God's revelation in the Son, which is a saving revelation, is addressed to us. And when you stress that, it becomes clear that the revelation of God in Christ is personal and specific. It's intended to a specific audience. This is not some generic revelation. This is not some divine soliloquy where God is speaking to himself. No, God is addressing us. And to whom does this pronoun refer? Us. Well, it refers to, in fact, the writer. It refers to the audience, the first century audience but it refers to the church and to all mankind. God has spoken finally in the Son, and he has spoken to us. But we can also flesh that us out a little bit more. He has spoken to us as his vice-regent, as those who have been made in the image of God. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says, But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him. You have made him a little lower than the angel. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hand. God has spoken finally to us. We who are made in the image of God. We who are the crowning glory of God's creation. We are the apex, the best of all that God created. God has revealed it to us. But the sad reality is that we have vandalized and defaced the image of God. We have not lived up to what we were supposed to be. In fact, we have turned aside. See, God's revelation then is a revelation to us as sinners. And Hebrews has an unflattering description of man in sin. First of all, we are those who are defiled by sin that must be cleansed. 
We are those who stand guilty before God who must be forgiven. And we are those who are impotent who must be delivered. We are a people who are in desperate straits. And God has revealed his revelation to us. And this revelation which has come to us is a performative word. You see, he has revealed himself by the word through whom he created the world. The word through whom he sustains the world. And the word through whom he saves. His revelation in the Son, then, is not only a performative word, it is an authoritative word. The word that was given to mankind in the past through angels was severe if one broke it. And therefore, the revelation in God's final revelation, Jesus Christ, is even more severe if you are to ignore it. And so, my friends, let me summarize where we have come. We have argued based on what, Paul, what, what the writer says in verses 1 to 4, that God has spoken. That, that the final revelation of God to us is Christ. That revelation to us is in essence a saving revelation. And that revelation has been given to us sinners. Bergman in his work entitled The Seventh Seal tells a story of a knight who returns from the crusade. And he stops by a little chapel and he begins to confess. He does not know the person to whom he speaks is death. He spills all the things that are in his heart. And then in a moment of anguish, he says this, I call out in the dark, but no one seems to be there. God is silent. I believe that for many of us, in our world today, this is how we picture God. A God who is not there, and therefore a God who is silent. But what we read from the writer of Hebrews is that God is here, and that God is not silent. God has spoken. And all that we are to know about God and his ways have been given to us in Christ. He has spoken in Son. Now, this has ramifications for how we live. First of all, we need to recognize that Christ is the interpretive key to Scripture. That if we are to understand Scripture in its entirety, we must read it through the lens of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who fulfills all that the Old Testament prophets spoke about. They were authorities in their own day, but Christ now fulfills and replaces them. They spoke for God. They spoke about God. But Christ does not speak for God. He does not speak about God. He speaks as God. He speaks in his own authority. That's the reason he could say, you have heard, it has been said in time past, but I say to you, he exalts himself above the prophets. There is a picture when Jesus Christ was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. We had Moses and Elijah who arrived. And Peter wanted to build three shelters. He thought that they were to be equated. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Christ. And there comes a cloud, a glory cloud, a cloud that is reminiscent of the cloud in the Old Testament. 
and a voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Hear him. He's the finality of God's revelation. And it means that when we read the Old Testament, we read it through Christ. But what is enforced and effective is that which Christ has now revealed. He fulfills the Old Testament. He replaces it. We're not saying the Old Testament has no value. It does have an indicative value. It does teach us about God. But we are now in a new era under grace and under Christ. We live by the law of Christ. Christ then is the interpretive key to the scriptures. But because God has spoken in the Son, it means that you and I must acknowledge this revelation in Christ. God has spoken and spoken in grace. Can you imagine where we would have been if we never had scripture? Can you imagine where we would be if we never have Christ, a revelation of God's salvation. But God chose to disclose himself. He willed to be known, that we should know him and that we should know him in Christ, that we should not languish in darkness. God has revealed his truth about himself, about his grace, about his compassion, about his goodness and his kindness, and he has revealed it in his Son. And you and I must cherish and value God's speech to us in Christ. And that means that we must never elevate our thoughts and opinions and judgments about the revelation in Jesus Christ. It means that we must never part with God's revelation in Jesus because of intimidation or false reasoning or become unfaithful to his revelation in Jesus Christ by swimming with the tide. We must guard and cherish what God has said to us about his son, and particularly the message of salvation that is in Jesus alone. But you and I need to know that God, having spoken, still speaks in his son. And we must hold fast to him who is savior. He is the eternal son, the exact representation of the father's being. He's God himself. He is the incarnate Son who has come into the world to cleanse us from our sins. And let us be very clear. He did not come merely to be an example. We agree that the cross of Christ is an example. He did not merely come to show us God's love. We agree that the cross shows us the love of Christ and the love of God. But he came to die for our sins. We were in jeopardy. You see, Christ is God's remedy to humanity's problem. Our problem is that we have offended God and he is not happy about it. And he has promised to do something about our sins and our offenses. That he will hold us accountable. But he has also provided a remedy, a saving remedy, whereby we may escape judgment, whereby we may come to safety. What I'm saying to you is this. Jesus Christ is our harbor and our place of safety. God has revealed salvation in Jesus Christ. He has come and he has died for our sins and has delivered us from the wrath of God and he's the one who brings us to safety. And God still speaks through this eternal son, 
through this incarnate son. He speaks to us through this exalted son. And he's saying, here is salvation. Embrace him, receive him, bow to him. He's saying, take him as your savior. Salvation is to be found in him. I want you to know that the cross still speaks. We read in this same book of Hebrews that the blood of the Son of God, his blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out to his generation for justice. But Christ's blood still speaks. In 2016, it is crying out for mercy. And all who have sinned, all who know themselves to be sinners, there is mercy in Jesus. His blood is saying mercy. And if you have messed up, if you have sinned, if you have done wrong and you know it, I know there is hope for you in Christ because he cries out mercy. If you want deliverance, if you want mercy, it is in Jesus. This is the best news you can ever have. If you want to be free, there is mercy in Jesus because he forgives sins. And you must, you must receive God's saving word by repenting. What I mean, not just being sorry for sin, but by leaving them. By turning away from everything that is sinful and displeasing. He speaks. He tells you to embrace Christ, to trust in his death and resurrection as the basis of your salvation. Will you do that today if you're not saved? Will you receive God's word in Christ and be saved by trusting in him who died for sinners? But he speaks to us in his son. It's a saving word. And he still speaks to us in the word of Christ, in this very epistle. And what does he say in the word? Well, he says many things to us. He says we must go on to maturity in chapter 6 verse 1. He says in chapter 6, we must never forget that God will not forget our labor of love for his name's sake and for his people as we minister. He says we must consider Jesus who endured the hostility of sinners lest we become weary and discouraged in our hearts. He says we must look at our trials as evidences of the fatherly love of God for us. He tells us we must pursue peace and holiness without which no man shall see God. He warns us to take care lest a root of bitterness develop within us. He calls upon us to avoid the example of Esau who sold his birthright for a plate of soup and though he sought it with tears, could not find repentance. He still speaks to us and he says, let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers. Remember the marriage bed is undefiled. He calls us to conduct ourselves without covetousness, to submit to our leaders, to continually offer the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to God and do not forget to do good and to share which God receives as a sacrifice. What I'm saying is that God has spoken and he has spoken in Jesus and because he has spoken, you and I must listen 
and we begin to listen when we embrace God's revelation in Jesus, when we receive him as our savior, we continue to listen when we obey his word, may it be today that you will hear the voice of God calling you to faith in Christ and greater obedience. God has spoken. May we all listen to his glory for Jesus' sake. Amen.